go. Good morning. All righty. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and please turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. The book of Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to continue in our study of the book of Ephesians. Hello to everybody who is watching online. Glad that you guys are here as well. If you can do two things at once, which I cannot, um, you can be turning to Ephesians 5 and also check out this verse on the screen. It's from Ephesians 5, one of the verses that we're going to read today. It says this, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And I want to highlight uh, what... Uh, those two words, the Lord's will. And I think a lot of people are asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Um, I've had the privilege of uh, being a part of our young adult community, uh, the Harbor, for the past nine years. And one of the big questions that college students and young adults often ask is, what is God's will for my life. And if you think about that age range, and I know a lot of people in here are in that age range, if you think about that, uh, your life is kind of an open book and there are so many possibilities when it comes to college, career, relationships, marriage, location that you live. But even if you're in here and you find yourself not exactly in that age range, what I would say is that there are still a lot of decisions that you need wisdom for. And all of us are facing big things that we are praying for and asking God for direction for. I mean, these are big things. This is not like McDonald's versus Burger King. What am I picking here? This is a really, there are really important uh, financial decisions, family decisions, relationship decisions that we are facing and that we are making in life. And we need God's wisdom. Maybe you're here and you would say, I'm not even a follower of Jesus I'm just kind of checking this thing out. But I would say even for you that there are no doubt things in your life that right now you would say it would be awesome if there was a God who would kind of help me in these directions and with these things. Now, I have kind of bad news and good news. The bad news is that unfortunately, there are oftentimes not chapter and verses for some of the questions that we have. Uh, if you're looking to say, what college should I go to? Should I stay here or should I uh, apply for another job? It's going to be hard to find a chapter and a verse for that. If you're in a dating relationship, it's going to be hard to be able to find the verse that says, thou shalt break up with him, right? <laughs> and so that's the bad news is that sometimes when we come to the Bible, we don't find the exact specific answers. But here's the good news. The good news is that God wants you to know his will. That God does have a will for your life. God has a plan and a vision. And, and really, Scripture is trying to teach us, and God is trying to teach us, to learn how God thinks. And as we learn how God thinks, we're able to better discern what God's will is for our life. I like to think about it like this. Um, I don't know if there are people here who are Apple Maps people or who are Waze people. I am a Google Maps person uh, when we go on vacation. And so uh, Katie and I, we recently went on vacation, and so we plugged in, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina as a destination. And one of the things I like about Google is that after you plug that in, there's the little magnifying glass, and you can search for various things along your route. So you can look for gas stations, or you can look for coffee shops or restaurants or whatever. And it's really important that you plug in your destination before you do that because I could find the world's greatest 
a gas station, but if it's in Dallas, Texas, it's not going to help me as I head toward Charlotte, North Carolina. Here, here's the application for us. If we know God's will for our lives, it, the big picture will, God's vision for our lives, it's going to help us with the everyday decisions because we know the big picture. And today, as we start Ephesians 5, we are going to discover God's heart, God's will for us. So please turn with me to Ephesians 5 verse 1. I know I already asked you to do that, so please look with me at Ephesians 5 verse 1. Remember in Ephesians, it's really split up into two parts. The first half is what has God done for us? All of the blessings that we have. And now we're in part two, which is really how do we respond to what God has done for us? And in verse one, we read this. It says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So maybe you didn't realize it, but God's big picture will for our life is really highlighted and outlined in these verses. In the ESV, um, it says this, Beloved children, be imitators of God. Look like God. Copy the way that God acts. And he says, how do you do that? Well, you, you walk in love in the same way that Christ loved us. And so if you think about all of the other commands of the Bible, all the do's and don'ts, they really can be under the, the bigger picture of be like God and walk in the love that Christ displayed and demonstrated for us. And that is God's will for our lives. I like to Think about uh, my son, Isaiah. And um, if you have children, one of the things that uh, you know, and if you don't have kids yet, I'm just warning you, that whenever people see uh, your kid, they will immediately look at you, look at the mom, look at the dad, and try to figure out which one do they look like. And I, this crazy thing happened uh, with Isaiah because for like the first two and a half years, every single person was like, he looks like Katie. But then something happened within the past six months of his life, and I noticed it. Katie noticed that we, like, kind of everybody is, like, seeing it. It's like he just started to look exactly like I looked when I was three years old. And I look at pictures of me. I look at him, and it's just kind of mind-blowing. And he's also, he literally is kind of like a mini-me. Like, I see how he thinks. I see how he acts. And I'm like, he is thinking and acting the same way I am. And so I'm, like, proud, and I'm nervous for him, and I'm emotional, and I'm freaked out. <laughs> And all of it, but he looks like me. And um, Malachi, our other child, he's kind of our wild child. Katie and I don't know where actually he is from sometimes. We're like, I don't know what's going on there. So we're still, pray for us with him. Anyways, um, that's, that's just a prayer request. That's not really part of the sermon. Um, we're supposed to look like Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, he, he talks about this in Colossians, and he says this in Colossians 3. He says, Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator. So you know your creator, you know Jesus, and become like him. So God's heart is, I want you to become like me. And I have a big idea for us to think about today. This is God's will for our life, and it is a challenge. So I'm just letting you know it's a challenging big idea. I want you to write it down, and we're going to talk about it for the rest of the time. But if I'm not becoming like Jesus... I'm not following Jesus. If I'm not becoming like Jesus, I'm not following Jesus. 
And so there are a, a lot of people that, that would associate themselves with Christianity. There are a lot of people that would say, yeah, that's, that's me. I, I go to that church or, or I kind of ascribe to that religion. But, but our goal as followers of Christ is not just, you know, I have something to fill in if I ever have to write what's your preferred religion. Our goal is that God's power would actually enter our lives and empower us and that he would change us to become like Jesus. So, so here's my question for us. As you look back over the past six months, over the past year, over the past five years, do you see God changing you to become more like Christ? Now, I want to give you an encouragement with this. Um, the enemy loves to give us condemnation. And so as you're thinking about this, no doubt he's bringing up, you know, a moment that happened last week or, or, or a moment that happened a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and so when we're thinking about this question, I don't like to think, you know, what was the worst thing I did, you know, yesterday or a couple weeks ago? But I like to ask, man, over the trajectory over the past six months, year, five years, is God transforming me to become like him? And we're going to learn how God wants to do that as we keep moving forward. Look at verse 3. It says this. Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such, as an, such person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Now, in these verses, we're going to spend a little bit of time camping out here. There's really two things that are happening. The first thing that we see is that Paul is describing these are things that followers of Christ avoid. And we'll talk about these things in just a moment. But, but I want to highlight and look back with me at verse 6 if you're still reading it. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. I love how the NLT translate it. It's up on the screen. It says, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey. And, and what, what we need to realize is that there's something in our hearts that likes to justify ourselves. And likes to say, you know, there's, there's no big deal about the things that I'm doing that maybe I know are not pleasing to God. And that there are people back then, as there are now, nothing's changed, that want to play into that desire. And that want to play into us just wanting to, to not really have anyone hold us accountable and not really have an authority over us. And so what, what can happen is that you and I, we can, we can be deceived into thinking, you know, God's cool with whatever. And, and there are people that preach, you know, God will love and accept everyone no matter what. And here's the thing, God does love everyone, but God does have a standard, and he invites us to understand that, that he cares about that standard. It's not no big deal to him. Now, we're talking today about do's and don'ts. We're talking about God's commands. We're talking about things that God calls sin. Now, whenever we talk about do's and don'ts, it's really important for us to think rightly about it. 
And so we're going to go deep for a second, and I need us to understand that it's important for us to learn how do we think about God's commands. And there's two traps that we can fall into, and they're both deadly traps. And I have them up on the screen. The first trap is called legalism. And I like to call legalism empty works. So what is legalism? Legalism is simply saying, I have to earn good, I have to stack up my good works. And if I stack up my good works, I can build kind of a staircase high enough to make it to God on my own. I just have to be a good enough person. And I have to just do enough good deeds. And there's a lot of fear in legalism. There's a lot of condemnation in legalism. It's a performance mindset because I have to perform. And if I don't perform, God won't love me. Maybe some of you came from a church that was a legalistic church and there was fear and there was control and there were people inspecting your life constantly. And so that's a deadly trap, legalism. On the other side, though, it is the trap of license. And I would like to say license is really no works. License is you can do whatever you want. God doesn't really care. God does not have an opinion. And Paul says to license, let no one deceive you. And so we don't want to be in either trap, so where do we want to be? Well, I have something on the screen that I want us to look at, and if the guys could leave it up for just a moment as we talk through it. As followers of Jesus, we embrace gospel-centered formation. Let's talk about that. First off, I want to talk about the word gospel-centered. What is the gospel? Paul's talked about it throughout Ephesians. He talked about it throughout Galatians, if you were with us. The gospel says we can't earn our way to God. We can't do enough good works or good deeds to save us. Our righteousness is not good enough on its own. In fact, it's nowhere close. And so the only way we can be saved is by Jesus dying on the cross and by us putting our faith and trust in Jesus. It's not our work. It is Christ's work. Ephesians 2, it is not by grace you have been saved, or it is not by works you have been saved. It is by grace you have been saved. And so we got to understand that's not just I got saved by grace, now I'm on my own. It's not like, yeah, thank goodness he saved me, but now I have to figure it out on my own. No, throughout our lives, God is walking with us and he's empowering us and he's committed to us. But we also need to realize that it's about formation. Now, I love that word formation because it speaks to a process. God is patient with us. God is working with us. God is walking with us. If you are a Christian and you would say, I just feel like I'm not where I'm supposed to be as a Christian, welcome to Christianity. If you feel like, man, sometimes I'm just in love with Jesus and sometimes I feel like my life is a giant mess, welcome to the whole thing, okay? Because all of us are on the journey. You know, right now, as a church, we're so grateful and so excited that we're doing this playground remodel. And right now, if you walk out there and look at the playground, you would think we have made a huge mistake. (laughs) Because it actually, right now, if we were to stop right now, we should have just not started. Because it looks really bad. There's just mud everywhere. If you guys want to go swimming, there's plenty of water to go out there and swim around on the playground. There's dirt. There's no more. I mean, it's a mess. But, but... If you've ever done a construction project at your home, you know the mess has to come before the rebuild. And and man, our lives, we're kind of always in this constant state of God reworking stuff and God moving in our lives. So it is a process of formation. 
But God is trying to make us become like Jesus. That is his goal. That is his vision for our lives. And this passage really highlights three different ways that God is trying to help us become like Jesus. And so we're going to look at these three ways, and we have already read them in verses 3 through 7. The first one is this, and you can write it down, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to become like Jesus in our sexual purity. We're called to become like Jesus in our sexual purity. Verse 3 of chapter 5 says this, Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. And in verse 5, it says, no immoral or impure person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, it's important for us to realize that this is not like kind of Paul saying this random one-off thing that is not otherwise talked about throughout Scripture. In fact, Scripture has a consistent teaching on God's view of sexuality. Another verse that highlights this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Now, I need us to understand something, that God is not grossed out by sex, In fact, God is the giver of the gift of sex and sexuality to humanity. And God gives it as a a beautiful gift, but it's also a powerful gift. And because it is so powerful, there are boundaries that it must be contained within. And the boundaries of scripture that sex and sexuality should be contained in is the boundary of marriage. One man and one woman being married in a covenant together, and that is where all sexual action should uh, take place. Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, here's the thing that we have to realize, that this primary message of, of, of sort of sexual purity is one of the ways that the world really is attacking Christianity right now because they view it as very oppressive. They view it as repressive. And really over the past 60 years, and and we're seeing it in even different ways now, the the world in our culture is saying, okay, well, if you want to be free, you need to kind of unhook yourself from that repressive teaching and you need to kind of like discover and do whatever you want to do sexually. But, but here's the thing, if you have ever had any history of doing things outside of God's will, I think what you'll discover in your own past, and it's certainly something that I can attest to, as I've shared with you guys in my teenage years, in my early 20s, this was the primary temptation and the primary sin that I struggled with during those years. And what I discovered was, uh, the, the more I pursued it, it wasn't like, man, I'm feeling so empowered and so free, the more I pursued it, uh, the, the worse things got for me and the more trapped and the more enslaved and entangled I was. And I think many people could say the exact same thing. We're called to be like Jesus in our sexual purity. Now, Jesus actually has a very strong command for us and a response for us in sexual purity. And he he teaches in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he says. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, we got to get something on the table here first. Jesus is not advocating for self-harm or self-mutilation, okay? So please, no one go to Ace Hardware and purchase a machete after this teaching. Very important. But what Jesus is saying is that we ought to take drastic measures to cut out sin in our lives. And I do think it is interesting that he uses the image of eye and hand, two things that are often associated with sexual sin. And he says, make sure that you stop and avoid these things. And you know what's interesting? A lot of times when people uh, talk about sexual sin, they blame everybody else. Oh man, the world's so bad, the internet's so bad, movies and TV's so bad, my phone's so bad, you know, people dress this so bad way. And, and Jesus is actually just saying, here, look, at, like, the, the things of this world, like, they're going to happen, you need to take personal responsibility. It's your responsibility for your soul, and you need to guard yourself and cut the things out of your life that, that are causing you to stumble and causing you to go down that road. So we're called to become like Jesus in our sexual purity. The second thing that we see that we are called to remove from our life is that we are called, you can write this down, that we're called to become like Jesus in our desires. In our desires. Notice in verse 3 that Paul talks about any kind of greed. And then in verse 5, he says that a greedy person is an idolater. So what is greed? Greed is simply a lack of contentment. Greed is believing that if you buy one more thing, if you sort of bring something else into your life, if you pursue this hobby or pursue this relationship, ultimately one more thing is going to bring you happiness, fulfillment, and joy. And in our culture, we have to be extremely careful with this. Because we live in the most convenient time in human history. And so, man, if you were living at the time when the Apostle Paul wrote, and you were like, man, I would really love to have some comfort in my life, a nice, some riches that someone else has, it may be really hard for you to have it. We live in a time where we can tap three buttons and get everything. And so almost... Greed can hide from us because we never feel the, the, the effects of the greed because we just get whatever we want at all times. That's just the reality of it. And Jesus, he gave us a very strong warning. Once he taught a teaching, and he was teaching about four different types of soil. And the four soils represented four heart conditions. And a farmer would scatter seed on each one of the soils, and the seed represented the word of God. And one of the soils was a soil full of uh, of, of weeds and thorns. And, and look what Jesus talked about. He said, others are those sown among the thorns. And they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Now leave this up for just a second. You know, I would expect Jesus to be talking about, you know what's bad is, is you know, alcohol, or you know what's bad is, is pornography, or you know what's bad is, is violence. you got to be careful with those things. No, if you look at these things, on the surface, they aren't what we would typically consider 
the sins. But what Jesus is saying is that we have to be very cautious because we can amass so many things into our lives that our lives get so overwhelming, our lives get so busy, our lives get so full that it actually chokes out what God wants to do. And so as we look at our calendar, as we look at our budget, as we even look at the space in our home and the things that we own, are those things things that are empowering us in our relationship with God, helping us to move toward Christ, or are we filling up our lives with such things because of our desires that's actually choking out what God wants to do? We're called to be like Jesus in our desires. Now, the third thing, and by the way, just if you're like, hopefully this is an easy one. Sorry, it's actually not an easy one. <laughs> uh, the third thing that we're called to become like Jesus on is we're called to become like Jesus in our words. In our words. In verse 4, Paul says there should be no obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Now, as I read this, um, I actually am uh, convicted by this one. And I'm somebody that uh, I call myself like, uh, like, I'm like a high volume shooter when it comes to talking, you know? Um, there, there's a show, and uh, like a famous show, one of the characters is like, sometimes I just start a sentence and I have no idea where it's going and I just figure it out along the way. That's my whole life, okay? <laughs> I'm just like, if I talk enough, I'll say something good in there. That's kind of my philosophy. That's why I'm, I guess maybe I'm a good pastor or a good preacher, I don't know. But um, here's the deal. Like for me, I recognize as I examine myself that I can use my words to control people. I can use my words to try to win people's approval. I can, I can even use my words to, to, uh, to be critical at times. Jesus, he, he said this about our words. It's, it's, a, it's a very intense thing that he says. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. So Jesus says, if you want to know where your heart's at, just listen to how you talk. He says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And there's, we can use our words to tear down others. We can use our words to promote ourselves. But what we're called to do is we're called to use our words to thank the Lord and to build up other people. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. So we become like Jesus in our sexual purity, in our desires, and in our words. Now, I am sure that as uh, we've gone through this passage, um, Probably most people are sitting here thinking, like, that's enough conviction. Um, maybe we, we can go home now. We're all feeling plenty uncomfortable. <laughs> and what I want to encourage you is this, that God does not leave us alone as we try to follow him, okay? God is not like, you know what, like, here's the rules. You're greedy. You're sexually impure. You talk too much. Figure it out and report back to me or we're done. 
That's not God's heart. And actually, as we're going to continue to study, we're going to discover two amazing tools that God gives us. And they are powerful realities that God has gifted us with that is going to help us as we seek to become like Jesus. So let's keep reading. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter 5. And this is what it says in verse 8. It says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Okay, so we're thinking about a room. We're thinking about a light bulb. When you turn off the light bulb, the the room is dark. So Paul is contrasting these two things. And find out what pleases the Lord. Verse 11, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but rather everything exposed by light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so here, here's what Paul is saying. He is contrasting these two things. And he's saying that, that when you are in a room, when you turn the light off in the room, there is darkness, and in that darkness, it is secrecy. Everything is hidden. And listen, secrecy, hiddenness, is the enemy's territory. The enemy loves for things to be in secret, and they, he loves for things to be hidden. And then on the other hand, he says, when you turn the light on, everything is illuminated. And when that happens, everything becomes exposed. And what is brought into the light, that is Christ's territory. And so here, here's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, and here's how we can apply it to our lives that God has given us something called confession. And confession is you and I bringing into the light the things that are in our hearts. And we bring into the light, we bring them into the light to God, and we bring them into the light to trusted people around us. And I think this is so important. You know, a lot of times uh, people, when they think about confession, um, they have a negative reaction or they think, oh, you know, that's kind of below me or it's not really for me. One of the things that I've discovered is that confession is such a powerful tool for the believer. You know, I've been very open, and I even talked a little earlier in this sermon about um, my struggles with sexual sin and my struggle with pornography in my teens and early 20s. And, you know, one of the things that people often ask me is, like, how did you gain victory over those things? And God has given me almost a decade of victory over them. And one of the ways that I gained victory over them was that I had people in my life, three or four people, that when I was feeling the temptation, I would text them and be like, I'm feeling this temptation right now. Please pray for me. When I did fail, I would text them and say, I failed. I messed up. Please pray for me that I'll be stronger next time. And even now, as I have gained victory over that specific area, there are still plenty of areas of my life that God is working on me. There are times when I feel very discouraged. There are times when I struggle with jealousy. There are times when I want to react in the flesh and in anger, not in the spirit. There are times where I can be very defensive, And when I face those thought patterns and when I realize, man, I'm thinking something and I'm I'm going down a path that is not of the Lord, one of the most powerful things that I have experienced is when I confess that to somebody, how God wants to move and how God does move in my life when I bring it into the light. The enemy wants you to keep it in the darkness. He wants you to hide it. He wants you to live in shame because in shame is his his power is over it. When we bring it into the light, 
God's power and God's mercy and grace can come through. Amen. I want to talk quickly about five facts about confession, because I want to teach this, and I want us to learn and discover what God's heart is for confession. So on the screen, we're going to see five facts about confession. The first thing is that confession is agreeing with God about our sin. When we confess to God, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I'm admitting to you what you already know, which is that I messed up, that I'm thinking wrongly about something, And I'm just agreeing with you. You said it's wrong. You said it's sin. You said it's not good. And I'm saying I'm agreeing with you on that. The second fact about confession is this, that we are commanded to confess our sins to God and also to each other. In 1 John 1, 9, it says that we should confess our sins to God and that he will forgive us our sins. But also we are commanded to confess to each other. James 5 says that confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, some of you may have grown up in a, in a religion or in a, a, a practice that you confessed to a priest or you confessed to a, a leader in a church, and you do not have to confess to a priest. You don't have to confess to like a spiritual authority. In fact, I believe within your Christian community, it is powerful to confess to each other. It's okay if you want to come to a pastor and talk about a struggle. You want to come to a prayer partner or uh, one of the leaders of our church and talk about it. That's okay, but you don't have to do that. The third thing that I want us to understand is that the best time to confess is at the thought level. Now, we all mess up, but before we mess up, we experience temptation. Sometimes people feel bad about the temptations or the negative thoughts. And what's so important for us to realize is that the power actually comes when we bring those thoughts to light because when they're in the light, they lose their power. One of the things that I talk about with guys a lot when they come to me and they say, I'm struggling with pornography, how can I stop? I say, you gotta start confessing it at the thought level, not after the action happens. So when you're driving home and the temptation starts hitting and you're thinking, man, I'm I'm so tempted to, to do something that I know I shouldn't, Text someone and bring it into the light then. When you're, when you're in your room or when you're alone and that, that temptation happens, that's when to bring it into the light. The fourth one is really important, and I want to talk about it for a second. Confession is the first step towards change. Listen, their confession is incredibly powerful. Sometimes when you confess, Uh, God actually will remove a desire, remove a feeling, and and it's a powerful thing. But especially there are things that we do that have consequences. And sometimes when we sin, especially against a person, it can break trust. And so there must be a repairing of trust that happens. You know, a lot of times people just want to say, yeah, like, I confessed, I said I was sorry, we're good, right? Right? And sometimes we actually have to go through a season of healing, especially when you've broken trust with another person because they have to heal as well. There are some things that they are sinful, but they don't harm and hurt the community as much. You know, like for me, something that like occasionally like I will struggle with, and it's not good, is that I'll be on my phone, I'll look at social media, and I'll see another church or another pastor, and I'll start comparing myself to that person. Maybe I'll experience jealousy or doubt or insecurity, and it's like, okay, like I need to confess that. That does affect me. 
Um, but if, if I confess that to Katie, that's not going to destroy our relationship, okay? But, but if someone does cheat on their spouse or if someone is, is, is doing something deceptive behind their back, there is a trust that is broken there, okay? And sometimes the person who confesses is like, oh my goodness, I feel so much better now. I've confessed. I've brought it into the light. But that other person has to go through a process of healing. And so here's what I want to say that as I've thought and prayed about this message, I've thought that no doubt there may be some people in this room that do need to bring things into the light and need to be obedient to Christ and that it could cause messiness before it is repaired and before God's restoration happens. And what I want to say is that as a church, we, we want to walk with you through that, especially if you're dealing with a, a heavy, a difficult situation. Don't go through it alone. Whether you're the person that sinned or whether you're the person that was sinned against, we want to walk with you and we want to, to serve you. And there's plenty of different ways that that can happen. The, the fifth thing is this, and this is the last thing we'll talk about with confession. When someone confesses, we listen, we love, and we pray. And this is especially true. Um, of course we do that if someone is, is apologizing to us for a sin they did against us but especially as someone brings something uh, that, that they're struggling with. We want to be great at how we respond to this. We don't want to respond with shock or horror or, you know, condemnation, but we want to say, hey, listen, if you're confessing it, you're already feeling bad about it. So we want to come alongside you. We want to pray for you, and we want to encourage you. Okay, remember I said that there are two tools that God wants to use. We've learned about confession. Let's look at the final one as we close. Verse 15 says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. These verses are, are challenging us to recognize that God has placed us in this world for a specific purpose. And we need to rise up as this generation and say, you know, the days are evil, but we want to make the, the best use of the time. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, in his I Have a Dream speech, he, he talked about the fierce urgency of now, that now is the time to act, now is the time to, to move forward. And for us as Christians, now is the time for us to pursue our relationship with Christ, for us to become more like Jesus, for us to make a difference in the world. Verse 18 says this, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now notice what Paul is contrasting here. When you consume alcohol and when alcohol uh, takes over your life, you are under its influence. It changes you. It, it has a power over you that causes you to do things that you wouldn't normally do. And if you continue down that pattern of continually consuming that, it will really change and shift who you are at a core level. And Paul is actually saying, okay, that's not a good thing. We don't want to do that because that's going to lead to a lot of bad situations. But he's comparing and saying, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit changes you. The Holy Spirit influences you. The Holy Spirit changes you from the inside out and helps you and empowers you, not towards debauchery and things that are bad, but towards the will of God in your life. And then he says this, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, 
always giving thanks to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so as we close here, what we see is this, that that the second tool that God has given us is the, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God himself coming into us and encouraging us and walking with us and empowering us in our relationship with Christ. There are a lot of things that when we read the Bible, we think, I could never do that. That's impossible. And it is designed to be impossible without the help of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in order for us to be transformed and in order for us to walk out the things that God has called us to walk out. You are not designed to walk with him apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment and we're going to open up our hearts to God and we're going to have a moment of just response and reflection based on what God has been speaking to us. And so I want to invite everyone just to bow their heads and to close their eyes. The the first thing that we talked about today was confession. And confession is us just admitting and bringing into the light the things that we have done wrong, the the ways we've displeased God so that God can bring healing to us. And so what I want to do is I just want to create a space for us for just a couple of minutes in the quiet to talk to God and to do business with God. And maybe as we've spoken, there are some things that God has put on your heart that you need to confess to him, that you have tried to hide from him. We can't hide anything from him, but you've kept it to yourself. And so I want to just take a moment and invite us to talk to God. Before we do that, I'm just going to pray, God, we love you. You love us. Your heart is for us. Your commands are not burdensome, but they are to give life and to give freedom. So I pray for this time of confession that your spirit would be moving among us and that you would speak to our hearts. So just take a moment. And if there is something that God has reminded you of that you need to confess to him in the quiet, Right now, talk to God and confess to him. Dear God, your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so I want to encourage you that as you confess things to God right now, that God is faithful to forgive you. You don't have to say a prayer 20 times. You don't have to do some religious activity over and over again 
You don't have to leave here doubting whether or not God heard. He heard you. And when we confess, he is faithful to forgive. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. So God would actually be unjust to not forgive. He is just, so he does forgive because that sin has already been paid for. But not only does he confess, or not only does he forgive, but he also cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He wipes it away, and as he sees us, he sees us as pure. And so, God, I just pray right now that as we are praying to you, that as we sing in just a moment, that we would just have a revelation, our eyes would be open to the reality of how you see us as holy, as pure before you, as your children. And that you have already done the work to cleanse us. That you're far more committed to us than we are to you. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. The, the other thing that we talked about, we talked about confession, but we also talked about the Holy Spirit. And we need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We need to surrender to the Holy Spirit and invite him to move in our lives. We need to recognize, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your power. And so as we sing over these next couple of moments, I want to encourage you to use this song as your prayer. If you feel comfortable, you can lift up your hands. You can hold out your hands like this. Use this song as your prayer to say, God, I need you. Please fill me with your spirit. I surrender to you. And sometimes when that happens, you, you know, we become very emotional and we become overwhelmed. Sometimes we don't feel anything emotionally, but in faith we trust that God is moving and that we are surrendered to him. So let's just take a moment, let's sing, and let's ask God to move. And let's ask God to fill us as a church, as people, with his spirit. Come on, let's sing. Make
If you would, just, if you want to just receive the Holy Spirit um, and just be filled with the Holy Spirit so that he can help you as you walk out this journey of following him. Maybe you've never asked the Holy Spirit to be empowering you. Maybe you just need to be refilled. Would you just hold out your hands like this? And every single Christian should be saying, God, I need the Holy Spirit. God, we love you. And you said that if, if, if we ask you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us, to comfort us, to walk with us, that you would pour out your spirit upon us. And so, God, I just pray right now in this moment, just fill our church with your spirit. Fill those followers of Jesus with your spirit. God, we need you. We need you to change us. We need you to help us. We need you to empower us. We need you to give us boldness as we tell people about you. We need you to, to help us to know the gifts that you've given us so that we can walk these things out. For those of us with addictions, for those of us with sins in our lives, we need your help overcoming them by your power. And so God, whatever we're walking through for our marriages, for our parenting, for those of us in school, for those of us who are trying to figure out what you've called us to do in life, for husbands, for wives, for fathers, for mothers, for grandparents. We need your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you, God, to pour out your spirit. Fill us, Lord. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, or if you need to rededicate your life to Jesus, there's gonna be a prayer team that's down front. They would love to pray with you. If you need any prayer at all, any prayer requests for any reason, I wanna invite you to come down and get prayed for as well. It's so important. If God's still stirring something in your heart, even from this message, I know it was a heavy message, you can sit in your chair and pray. You can come down here to the altar and pray. Don't leave this place if God's stirring something up in your heart. Um, for those of you guys uh, who uh, did sign up for pizza with a pastor, uh, it, it will be in just a few minutes uh, up above the commons. Uh, you can follow uh, the, or up above the cafe, um, you can follow the signs and the people. They'll point you in the right direction. Um, we have our offering boxes in the back, and you can also give online, grateful for your generosity to the Lord. And for anyone who's new, uh, we have a center ring in the commons called New to Calvary. There's some people out there that would love to meet you and talk to you and just welcome you to our church. Uh, we love you. We hope you have an incredible week. Uh, God bless you, and we'll see you next time. We'll see you at Praise Night. See you then. Bye.